0: March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese is stabbed to death within sight and sound of at least 38 neighbors near her New York City apartment. All 38 of her neighbors ignore her cries for help during three separate attacks, lasting a total of 35 minutes. According to police, no less than these 38 people heard and possibly saw at least one of the attacks from the knife-wielding assailant. No one came to her aid, and no one bothered calling the police. Well, one did, but that only after the third attack had killed her. This appalling display of collective indifference sparked sensationalized media coverage, horrified the nation, and prompted numerous psychological studies into what would become known as The bystander effect. Witnesses interviewed subsequently gave two main reasons for doing nothing. Fear and not wanting to get involved. The police maintained that had they been called after the first attack, Genovese would have likely survived her wounds. And a a squad car was on the scene within two minutes of that final call when it finally did come in. So it seems reasonable to assume that they were right. It is a terrible thing to see someone in danger and to do nothing. Yet how often do we in the church fall prey to the bystander effect when our brothers and our sisters are caught in sin? There is nothing more dangerous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book Life Together, nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to sin and nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Charles Finney has said this about ignoring the sins of others. If you see your neighbor in sin and you pass him by and neglect to reprove him it is as cruel as if you should see his house on fire and pass him by and not warn him. When we refuse to hold one another accountable to the professions of faith that we have made, when we refuse to call one another to walk in the light as Christ is in the light, we harm ourselves, we harm one another, and we dishonor Christ. The church has been tasked with being a display of God's glory. And if our lives are not an accurate portrayal of that redemption, well then, friends, we undermine the very gospel that saves us. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3 again today, and as we've walked through Titus the last few weeks, we've been looking at good works, which that's what this this chapter is structured around, good works. We've said God's good work and our good work. In the first week, we actually started with verses 3 through 7, because that is kind of the gospel in a nutshell. And what we said there was we were dead in our sins. Our sin had separated us from God. All of us, every person that has ever lived, has chosen to go our own way, chosen to do things according to how we feel, and we wanted to follow our hearts rather than being obedient to God's word. And consequently, we set ourselves up as his enemies and found ourselves enslaved to passions and pleasures. Everybody worships. That's what we were created to do. The question is, what will you worship? Typically, people worship things like money, power, or sex, but we're called to worship God. And it's only when he steps in and saves us, you'll see in verse 5, it will tell you he saved us. It's when he saves us that we wake up to the reality that we have been slaves to passions and pleasures and sinful things that are ultimately leading to our destruction. We learn that when he saves us, it's not because of something we do, but because it's his good pleasure, because of his benevolence, because of his kind care for us. Remember, we said God is the great philanthropist. He has a love for mankind, and we illustrated it like this, that when God saves us, it's as if we wake up in the back of an ambulance with an oxygen mask on and tubes going every which direction, and the EMT says there was an accident, you were dead, you were flatlining, and I saved you. That's what salvation is like. And so we said this is God's great and wondrous work. We were flatlining And he came to us in our sin. And he made us alive together with Christ by his grace. And now we stand to inherit everything together with Christ. We are heirs and children of God, adopted into the family of God, if we trust Christ by faith. Friends, if you are here and you have not united yourself to Jesus by faith, I exhort you this morning, do so. He gives true satisfaction true life. We also looked at our good works last week in the first couple verses and particularly what it means to be Christians in society, what it means to be good citizens in community. And we said we wanted to be obedient to the rulers and authority. We wanted to stand ready for every good work. We said that our yes would be on the table as we serve God and our neighbors that we wouldn't be a quarrelsome people, but that we would be gentle and show perfect humility or courtesy to everyone because we know what it's like to not know God. We said that we would adorn the gospel, that we make Jesus look beautiful when we live lives that are in step with the gospel, when we live wonderful lives aimed at serving our neighbor, loving our neighbor as ourselves, and bringing glory to God. And that was our first good work that we see, our works in community. And this week, we're going to look at another good work of the church, but I fear it's not often thought of as a good work in the church. And the theme is, if you look down in there at verses 9 through 11, is where we're going to spend most of our time. We're going to touch on all the verses and finish up Titus today. We're going to spend most of our time there, 9 through 11. And the thing that is in view here. We call church discipline, is how we we summarize it. And so uh, church discipline is aimed at protecting the reputation of Jesus and protecting believers. What it does is it sets up right restrictions for us. It holds us accountable to being obedient to God's law so that those who are members of the church are united in the truth of the gospel, And if there is someone in the church that is claiming to walk in the light, but is having fellowship with darkness and refuses to repent, saying they have no sin, well, then there's a process here that calls them to repentance, that warns them of the danger they're in. And eventually, if their faith is counterfeit, makes clear that they have not yet known Jesus, and thus safeguards the reputation of Jesus, which is embodied in his Church. church discipline is indeed an important mechanism, and it functions to the end of keeping a church healthy. And I've tried to summarize this main idea of the message or of the text in, in this sentence. And so if you want a sentence to walk away with today, it's this. Church discipline safeguards the integrity of the church. Integrity is defined in, t- in a couple ways. When sometimes we say the building has a great integrity. It's, it's whole, it's complete, it's not going to shake. And then also we think of integrity in terms of honor or um, truth, honesty. And we'll see that church discipline helps us to do both. See that it helps to maintain the unity of the church, keeps us in repentance and in fellowship together around these truths, these gospel truths, and it maintains the purity of the church. It causes us to put out those who would profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. And you see that a little bit back in verse 16 of chapter 1. If you want to flip over there, there are false teachers that are professing to know God, and they're denying Him by their lifestyles and their doctrines. And, and Paul says this is the type of person that we need to put out of our midst because they do not properly represent God christ they are poor evangelists they are sharing a gospel that is not the true gospel of grace and therefore we stand divided against them and rightly so let's pray together um, talk a little bit more about this i'm going to set the stage a lot this morning and then we'll get into the text heavenly father be our teacher this morning holy spirit we ask that you would help us to dwell in your presence that you would use uh, someone as weak as myself to communicate words that have such power, power to transform, power to save, power to bring into your presence. Pray that you would give us all a sense of your glory this morning. God, teach us to love you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this idea of church discipline, it's not a dirty phrase, it's not a doctrine that should cause us to recoil, though it is an often neglected doctrine. It's not popular to tell people, hey, uh, there's a a group of us that are rallied around Jesus and if you are disobedient, if you're in sin, you're going to be put out. People don't like that. People don't like to be called on their sin. They don't like to be told that they're wrong. But, But it's actually a normal part of the discipleship process. When we think of the discipleship process, we typically think of it in two parts. We think of it in terms of formative discipleship and corrective discipleship. Formative discipleship is what we're doing right now. It's when we get together and someone teaches from the word or we're teaching one another and we're allowing the word to bear down on us and shape us or form us in the image of Jesus as we are kind of working through that process of sanctification where we are becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in Jesus, which is holy. He said we're holy and so we're working together, holding one another accountable to becoming holy as Christ is holy. This is formative discipleship. We're learning those things to do. Now, the second one is called corrective discipleship. This one's less popular. But what happens is, is sometimes what we say with our lips disagrees with how we live our lives. And so we might know the right truths, but do the wrong things. And so what happens at this point is we need friends and brothers and sisters to come into our lives and say, look, you have wandered from the path of righteousness. here. You know the right thing to do, but but you're not doing it. How can I help you get back to holiness? This is, it's not, you see, it's not a um, hateful act, but a loving act. It's akin to having your kids eat their vegetables, right? It might be painful for them at the time. Nobody really likes kale or Brussels sprouts. But it's for their good. It's going to make them more healthy. Likewise, this corrective discipleship which is the category of discipleship under which we file church discipline, is for our good. I always think of it like this. It, it, you get to a certain level in math class in high school, some of you, or maybe there now, where the answers are in the back of the book. And so you have the problem and you have the right answer, but you don't have enough, right? You have to show the process that you work through by which you arrive at this answer. And so it gets kind of dicey sometimes. and You might not know what to do. And so you just, you know, you write down this stu- stuff. And if you have a good math teacher or or somebody that's good at grading your paper, they'll come along with their red pen and they'll show you all the places that you went wrong so that next time you can do the problem correctly. You'll have the knowledge or the wisdom that you need to be obedient to the order of operations or whatever you're learning about. Uh, maybe if you're not much of a mathematician, you've seen this in your English classes, right? You write a big, long paper, and maybe if you're like me in seminary, you give it to some friends, and then it comes back, and it looks like they dyed it with red. It's just covered in red ink. It was bled all over it. And, And you get a little bit offended at first because that's like your baby. These are your creative thoughts, and they've just told you that baby is ugly. But you go, you know what? This makes my paper better. It's better if I spell words right. And follow grammatical rules. It's for my good. This is corrective discipleship. And it's a normal part of the Christian life. If it's not happen- happening normally in and among us, I would be worried. Because it would mean that we are lying and say that we don't have sin. Or that we are too cowardly to confront sin in one another's lives. Now church discipline, when we talked about it in Matthew 18, we, we showed that there are a, is a more informal level to it and a more formal level to it, where we get everybody involved. The informal level should be happening all the time, because we we sin all the time. And so uh, it happens, maybe you miss three or four Sundays in a row, and you've uh, decided to be in membership here, and a brother or sister calls you on the phone and and says, hey, where have you been? And you say, listen, I am just really tired in the mornings. I've slept in, just would rather sleep than come to church the last few weeks. And they say, brother, that's not good for you. You can't neglect the gathering together of believers. Hebrews tells us that we need to gather together that it's for our good. How can I help you be there next week? You need me to pick you up? You need me to call you to make sure you're out of bed? How can I get you back to a better way of life, a more obedient way of life? It happens to me uh, pretty frequently. Uh, In the mornings, I often am, am cranky before I get my coffee, I don't know about you, but but I have to have that coffee before I'm usually ready to talk to people. Sometimes I'll come downstairs, and I will not be the most pleasant person in the world. And sometimes it'll get to the extent where Chelsea will have to come into that first level of church discipline. Right? She's she's going to tell me you're being a jerk. You need to have the attitude of Christ. And if I am having the attitude of Christ, I, I repent quickly and say I'm sorry. You're right, I, this isn't how a husband should love his wife. Sometimes it takes longer than others, uh, <laughs> but it's happening. It's preparing me to be more Christ-like. It's good for me. Now, when we studied in Matthew, if you remember, our main idea was that church discipline is aimed at the spiritual rescue of the individual and protecting the name of Jesus. And so we said that the goal of church discipline is twofold, the restoration of the individual and the purity of the church. Now in Matthew, the emphasis falls right smack on the restoration of the individual. And that's clear from uh, Matthew, that section of Matthew 18 itself, but also from what surrounds it. Because you have the section on church discipline that's flanked on both sides. On one side, you have the story of a good shepherd, who leaves his 99 sheep to find the one that strayed and been lost. And then he comes back and he has this on his shoulders and everybody rejoices. What was lost is found. And then you have the the section on what to do if your brother sins against you. Hey, that informs it. My brother sins against me and we go through this process, step one, step two, wherever we're at, and he repents. What was lost is found. The stray sheep is restored to the fold restoration of the individual. And then on the other side of that section on how we go through this process of church discipline in Matthew 18, we have the parable of the unforgiving servant, the point of which is that you must forgive your brother from your heart because you have been forgiven from the heart of God. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And so we see that we don't go through this process to be mean, but to call people to daily die to themselves, to make good on our profession of faith. We call one another to live our lives in the light as Christ is in the light so that we might be in fellowship with one another. It's a loving act. You know, in Matthew, that, that, that emphasis is on the restoration of the individual, but here in Titus, we don't really see all the details of this process like we do in Matthew. Here in Titus, the emphasis is on the integrity of the church. Paul is saying if there is an individual in and among you that is divisive, that is causing rifts among you, warn him once, warn him twice, put him out. He Actually, the way that that sentence is written, he starts with, reject this person, excuse this person from membership. And then he says, of course, after you've followed the process, after you've warned them and given them the opportunity to repent, He wants to protect the reputation of Christ. He wants to protect individuals. He doesn't want the church, what the church is, we're kind of the the local authority on earth that Christ has established to affirm and give shape to one another's Christianity. That's what the church does. And so if we are affirming a non-Christian as a Christian, we're doing them a great disservice. It's hateful to tell somebody they're saved when they're not. And so what we do when we affirm someone's salvation, so we say, we know you know Jesus, and you are daily repenting of your sin. You are pursuing Christ. You're following him along on the path. But if you stray from that path and are unwilling to repent, well, you're professing to know God, but denying him by your works. And so we might ask, how, how does church discipline safeguard the integrity of the church? I think it keeps us united around the gospel according to the right restrictions of God's design for life. Now, what we've said in the past, if you say um, slavery to sin is being ensa- enslaved by various passions and pleasures, those are the wrong restrictions for living out true freedom. That's slavery. We've said that freedom is having the right restrictions. And just like a fish is not free when it's out of water, we are not free when we are outside of the laws of God when we're out of step with the Holy Spirit. And so church discipline helps us to live inside of the freedom of knowing Jesus Christ. It calls us to Christian liberty with one another. It calls us to live life according to God's design. I have spent way too much time introducing, and so we're going to have to get into the text. I'm going to touch on all of it. Uh, we're going to start reading at verse 15 of chapter 2, and then we'll, we'll pick up from, from there. So, verse 15, chapter 2. Say these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind. Always showing gentleness or perfect courtesy, humility to all people. For we also were once foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this Spirit on us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. Notice the these things in verse 8 corresponds to the these things in verse 15, which are gospel things, gospel truths, the rudimentary aspects of Christianity. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Notice the contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. Uh, The good works are profitable for everyone. They're excellent. And these works here, these foolish debates and disputes, are unprofitable and worthless worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and sins, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help zenas the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey, so that they will lack nothing. Their people must also learn to devote themselves to good works. There's good works again, the theme of the chapter, for cases of urgent need, so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Verse 8 is really important to chapter 3. It kind of serves as a summary statement for all that which comes before and a hinge to inform what comes after. Christians are to be devoted to healthy doctrine and healthy living. And one of the things to bring back our theme of church discipline, it helps verify that our faith in Christ is authentic or it reveals our faith as counterfeit. If you remember last week, we said chapter 3 works a little bit like a group photograph. Or I wanted you to view it that way. And we know how it is when you get a group photograph. The first thing you do is you look for yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. You want to see how your hair looks and if your smile is, is just right, maybe if it's Instagram worthy. But what you do is you look and you find yourself in that photo. And that's what we, we need to do in Titus 3. We need to find ourselves. Are we the kind of people who are devoted to good works, that our yes is on the table? The kind of people we see at the beginning of the chapter. Or do we see ourselves more in verses 9 and 10? Divisive. Counterfeit in our faith. My hope is that we would be authentic in our faith. Christians united in belief and behavior, we will love one another deeply and we will represent Christ well. Because authentic faith, the kind of faith that is, that is evidenced in our doing good works, it will result in a gospel culture here, which is very attractive and fun to live in. When we stand ready for every good endeavor, when we work for the good of others and avoid fighting, when we resolve to speak evil of no one, when we begin to be defined as Jesus' people, the world notices It's attractive. I mean, Jesus was not lying when he said, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And so Paul actually gives us a hint, unintentionally, of what this gospel culture looks like, what verse 8 looks like in practice when he writes his final instructions. You see, he is expressing a deep solidarity with those that he is addressing. They're all on the same team. Despite the fact that these guys are all going different directions and doing different things, they belong to different churches, they are committed to the same truth and the same mission. They have the same mind, the mind of Christ, and the same mission, the mission of Christ. They are devoted to making disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has taught Notice, too, the, the missionary team that, that Paul is encouraging here. Zenos, the lawyer, which kind of sounds like Zena, warrior, princess. I don't know. That's what I think of when I read it. But this, the lawyer is not the important one. It's Apollos. Apollos. Do you guys remember Apollos in 1 Corinthians? There is this kind of fabricated rivalry that's going on between Paul and Apollos that the Corinthians have created. Right? One is saying, I follow Paul. The other is saying, I follow Apollos. Apollos is better than Paul. Paul is better than Apollos. But what we see here is that Paul's not buying that. We see it in 1 Corinthians 2. He, he it says that Jesus has built the church, that Jesus is the one who is Lord, and God is the one who makes the church grow. Paul and Apollos are nothing. We're slaves. We're committed to the same truth, the same mission. And so what we see in his final instructions even is that there will be no divisiveness or divisiveness here. Apollos is a true believer devoted to the gospel and consequently he's devoted to good works. And Paul says he must have everything he needs to continue to insist on these gospel things for the glory of God. So Paul's words and actions show that foolish controversy cannot be allowed to persist among God's people. I mean, Paul and Apollos could have easily been drawn into this Corinthian controversy and had a rivalry and a debate over who was the best. But instead, they unified around the gospel, inside of those right restrictions of God. It's not important which one of us is a better speaker or a better writer or who wrote more New Testament books, as Paul might argue. What's important is that we're committed to Jesus. This is central. This is the foundation. I mean, had they ended up dividing or debating foolishly, I have all the faith in the world that other Christians around them would have corrected this divisiveness. They would have rebuked them. Imagine Peter, who Paul rebukes in Galatians 2, probably would have been like, ready to do that, right? So I'll let, yeah, let me return the favor for you, Paul. No one is perfect, and everyone needs correction. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Those in Crete are not the only ones in church history to engage in foolish controversy. I mean, they're fighting over silly things like ancestry and the law, and we fight over silly things too. I've made a short list here, if you'll humor me first one's not so recent, but did you know that a hot-button issue used to be whether or not a church would have a baptistry indoors? Some thought that that was anathema. That's not the way that Jesus and the apostles did it. They went down by the river. If you bring a baptistry in here, I'm leaving the church. Some said and did. More uh, recently, we've seen battles over music style, right? Well, if we only sing contemporary hymns, uh, that's what we need to do, or or I'm going to find a church that does. Or if we only sing old hymns, then uh, I'll belong here, but uh, if we try to do anything else, I'm going to go find a church that only sings hymns. Uh, Other times, it's if we use instruments in the church, then I'm leaving. If we use instruments other than the piano, I'm out of here. If we don't use instruments, I'm leaving. We can use instruments, but if a drum set shows up, I am showing out, I'm done church is split over these things dress right if people don't dress with more respect then i can't go to church there i can't be a part of that pajama party i don't see that so much in this culture if the pastor doesn't wear a tie i intended to today um he's unfit to preach we'll leave the church meeting times even if we don't meet on this day at this time then i just i can't believe that those people are following god Oftentimes, it's also non-essential theological issues, you know, fifth and sixth order things like eschatology or, or how the world will end. If you're not ah-mill or post-mill or pre-mill like I am, then I'm out of here. I also looked up some really ridiculous ones that resulted in church splits uh, via Tom Rainer, who's the president of Lifeway. Here are a couple of his. One church uh, reported a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, Two, three, or four drawers. And then he snidely comments, this one is an official cabinet meeting of church leadership. A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had crayon grape juice instead of grape juice. Jesus only used grape, apparently. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Perhaps they started a new church, the Right Blend Fellowship. This is my favorite. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. (laughs) To which Rainer quips, only if it's balanced with angel food cake. think it's easy to laugh at these things, but these are real controversies, real issues that churches have and divide over. I think one that's just as ridiculous and foolish to divide over sometimes slips in under the radar. People are more ready to divide over it. And I think it's politics. Sadly, far too many professed Christians form their Christianity in light of their politics instead of forming their politics in light of their Christianity. Friends, the political left and the political right both have good things to say, believe it or not, and both have their problems. I think it can be damaging to think otherwise. In his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, which we're starting to read together, uh, Scott Sauls shares an anecdote about how Christians should be able to be united in Jesus and still vote differently. This is what he writes. During the 1992 presidential elections, A friend of mine told me about an awkward moment in his Bible study. One member of the group expressed excitement because that Sunday she had seen a bumper sticker promoting the other party in the church's parking lot. She was excited because to her, this was an indication that non-Christians had come to visit. Imagine the awkwardness when another member of the group chimed in. Hey! That was my bumper sticker. See, friends, our common faith in Christ, our commitment to these things, transcends our opposing political loyalties. And it's wrong to question someone's faith because they don't vote like you do. I actually think that is right, Saul's is right when he quips, in fact, the longer it takes for people to figure out where we stand on politics in all likelihood, the more faithfully we are preaching and following Jesus. Unless a human system is fully centered on God, and no human system is, Jesus will have things to affirm and to critique about it. It is foolish for us to allow non-essential and preferential things to divide the church. It's foolish to allow the church to become a forum for dispute, It's foolish to major in the minors. We must remember these things are the main things and they're the plain things. They are mentioned by Paul explicitly. They're what bind us together in Christ. And so those who are committed to Jesus avoid dividing over these types of issues. What this means for us is that We don't elevate those non-essential and preferential things, but before any discussion, because we we can still talk about these things, right? We just don't want to divide over it. I don't know what some of you would talk about if we couldn't talk about politics. It means that we enter into these forms of discussion ready to lose with humility. It means allowing Philippians 2, which says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It means allowing Philippians 2 to govern our behavior. I think really simple things can sometimes become huge deals. I always say don't make mountains out of molehills. And and there have been opportunities for this to happen here, uh, and thankfully it hasn't. I've been really pleased with how we've, uh, I guess, encountered some of these simple things. First few months after I was hired, we put new carpet in, and there was no bloodshed, and so I was thrilled about that. Sometimes you hear horror stories. I think more recently, we, we went with a ramp instead of a lift, and we decided to do that. And it was really awesome to see us unite on these simple things rather than divide. Because I know, I know some of you probably hate the carpet color. I know some of you probably wanted to have a lift. But I also know that some of you gave up what would be your preference, what would be your interests for the interests of others. Thank you. Thank you. Unity is more important. These are non essential issues. They're not these things. What happens, though, if someone refuses to love their neighbor? What happens if someone refuses to make these things the main things and the plain things? What happens if somebody wants to insist on their own way? and other things instead of gospel things. Well, Paul writes in verse 10, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and sins, being self-condemned. This is how church discipline protects the honor of Jesus and his church, as well as maintains unity. It removes counterfeit faith, counterfeit disciples, from fellowship in this instance the counterfeit disciples unrepentance is evidenced by his continued divisiveness or hers i have a long brian chapel quote that's awesome but you'll have to look it up online because i'm running out of time we are instructed here in titus as we are in matthew 18 to warn the person who has entered into habitual sin and to help them to repentance We're, we're told to do it more than once And as in Matthew, if the person refuses to repent, we are to excuse them from church membership. Why? It's not that we want to put them out. It's that we want them to repent. It's always true that church discipline is remedial, restorative, and redemptive. We get involved in the lives of one another. We call one another to repentance. We call one another to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light because we do not want to fall prey to the bystander effect. We don't want to sit by and allow our fears or our unwillingness to get involved result in the destruction of another member of God's family. As Christians, we cannot stand idly by while our brothers and sisters give themselves to sin. We know Bonhoeffer's words are true. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. We confront sin with hope that the words of James would be true of our efforts. This is is what James writes. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. At the end of the day, when a person is put out of communion with the church, it's because they've refused to repent. I mean, they've chosen that condemnation for themselves. And the church affirms this person has refused to follow Jesus and does not belong. And we do that with heavy hearts, praying that whoever is removed from among us would be a prodigal son that might wallow in the filth of sin for a while, but that there will come a day when they come back to the fellowship, back to the Father, and that there is much rejoicing and feasting and that there is a celebration. We pray that they will not be like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus very interested but recognized he loved the things of the world more than Christ and went away sad. When someone is excused from church membership, it it teaches us about the severity of sin, about our need to repent daily. It teaches us about the importance of Jesus' reputation, our need to unite around the main and plain things, to unite around these gospel things, and to not be divided over tertiary things. I think one of the implications of this is that we learn that church membership is a big deal. Our lives in community with one another put flesh on our words. If our churches don't display the glory of God, if we don't look of heaven, then the gospel does not seem like good news. And Jesus will not appear beautiful if we neglect to pursue holiness. Brothers and sisters, we need to care enough about God's glory, about Jesus' beauty, and about one another's holiness. We need to care enough to confront sin and to be confronted in our own sin. We need to care enough about what God calls us to do, to belong to a community of believers in which this type of church discipline takes place. Do you belong? What church, what fellowship of Christians have you entrusted yourself to? What authority is affirming and giving shape to your Christian life? You cannot claim Jesus and refuse to join yourself to his bride. You cannot claim Jesus and be indifferent or hateful to the church because to be indifferent or hateful to the church is to be indifferent to or hateful about Jesus. Jesus has not called us to a solitary lone ranger existence, no. When he saves us, he saves us out of the world into the church, which is the community of the people of God. If you remember in 1 John, we read, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. He calls us out of the world, saves us out of the world, into the church and on to mission together. Don't tell me you love Jesus, but you hate the church. Don't tell me you're a Christian, but you're unwilling to commit yourself to a body of believers. Because if you're unwilling to commit yourself to a body of believers, I don't know that you've committed yourself to Christ. Do you belong? Church membership is a non-negotiable if you are pursuing a deeper intimacy with Jesus. It is only as members committed to one another that we enjoy the benefits of mutual accountability. It's only when we're committed to one another that we are able to enjoy the resources of the church, things such as church discipline. I mean, the context and prerequisite for church discipline is belonging to a group of Christians that are committed to one another. I think this is why we must know who church members are. In order for us to properly live out church discipline, we, we need to know who has covenanted together. We need to know who's promised to hold us accountable, to pray with and for us, who has promised to participate with us in the work of ministry, and we need to know who we've promised to hold accountable, who we have promised to pray with and for, who we've promised to participate in the work of ministry with. And honestly, friends, As a church, we've not been great at this. There's a lot of confusion about who is or or who is not a member, who belongs or who does not belong. There's confusion between that uh, chronological list of everybody that's ever been a member of this church in the last almost 100 years and the list of people that are currently walking in fellowship with one another. That's okay. There's confusion in a lot of places. But I think we need to work together to, to correct it. I can't tell you how, how funny it is sometimes when people. I've been here almost three years now, and I've had a number of occasions where people have introduced themselves to me the first time, even in the last six months, and said, Hey, I'm so and so. And I've said, Hey, I'm, I'm Justin Braun. And they say, I'm a member of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. My thought is, No, maybe at one time. But you are not participating in the work of ministry with us, you've not submitted to the eldership here, you're not in membership. And I imagine if I said to them, if I treated them as if they were members and immediately said, well, if you're a member, then we need to start the process of church discipline because you have not been in church in three years, they would probably recoil a little bit. What? I'm not accountable there. The point is, no, maybe one more illustration. It it would be akin to being part of a bowling team 15 years ago and then never showing up for practice and never bowling at all and then you introduce yourself to somebody and say, hey, I belong to this bowling team, I'm a member. Well, no, you, no, you're not. You're not participating, you're not bowling. Church membership is about those who are doing life together, living in fellowship with one another. So the point I'm trying to make here is we need to work together as a church to be clearer about who's committed to one another here, to be clearer about our membership. And so one of the things we're going to try to do towards this end is in the next few months, we're going to have a covenant renewal service. Most of you have seen our our church covenant. That's a a, a promise agreement, if you will, between one member and another. Uh, Most of you, we adopted in like spring of 2014. So those of you that are are newer have seen it and and signed it, uh, and it's in the back there for you to pick up if you're interested in it. Um, And what we'll do at that covenant renewal service is everybody will take that covenant and we'll recommit to being in membership with one another, to being in community with one another. So we'll contact all those who have been members in the past, those who maybe have been members, everybody that seems to be involved. We'll say, come and covenant with us. Belong to us. And what I hope will happen is it'll become uh, a reminder for those of you that have been walking faithfully in community with one another of the great task to which we're called, of the promises that we've made. And for those of you that have maybe been habitual visitors here, I think it'll be an opportunity for you to join yourself to us to go all in, because the truth is, I think it's unloving for us to allow you to continue as a habitual visitor. You need to be committed somewhere, and so I want you to belong here. I think it would be a great joy. I love all y'all, but if you don't want to belong here, and you read that covenant, and it's companion church discipline policy thing, which is also in the back there for you to pick up at your leisure, uh, you read those and go, "Ah, I can't commit to that. Well, then you need to find a church where you can where you can commit and belong, where people can hold you accountable. Because church discipline, it safeguards you. So that if you begin to wander from the truth in your doctrine, there are brothers and sisters there to kind of shove you back on the path of holiness, back to these gospel things. Or if you begin to live your life in a way that's out of step with the Holy Spirit, there's a brother or sister there, a whole church family pushing you to become and practice what God has declared you to be in Christ. Belong somewhere. I'm going to share one more story and then close way over my time here, but but humor me. I've shared this story a couple times too, so some of you know it. But when I was younger, uh, my father was not always the cook, but every once in a while he got in there and cooked a little bit in the kitchen. And he was cutting up a, piece of ham, I think it was. My, my memory's a little fuzzy. But what he did was he, he slipped with the knife and cut off his finger. Just like, not the whole thing, but like half of it. And so what happened is, uh, as blood was spraying, it, blood wasn't spraying everywhere, but, but there was blood, you know, it happens. Uh, my mom went, because she's a, a good soldier, she went, she picked up his finger and put it in a bag of ice and sealed it up. Tough lady. And so we went to the hospital, they rushed to the hospital, and what happened there was a the surgeon took that finger off the ice it hadn't gone bad yet, and he attached it back onto my father's hand. And you know what happened? As simply by reattaching the finger to my father's body, gave it functionality and vitality. Likewise, the person who is severed from a local church and claims Christ is on ice. You will have no vitality or functionality until you are reunited to the body. A Christian divorced from the body of Christ is dying and rotting. Spiritual life apart from the body is grotesque and it is unsustainable. If you call yourself a Christian, you are called to belong to a church. If you want to get outside of God's will for your life, refuse to be a church member. Refuse to commit yourself to a body of believers. Refuse to come to the gathering and cut off meaningful relationships here but if you want to get into God's will for your life, just ask the good physician by his grace to reattach you to his bride. Friends, God loves and accepts us, accepts us as we are, where we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay there. He saves us out of the world, into the church, and on to mission. My hope for you this morning is that you would not be bystanders by not belonging somewhere. Not helping hold one another accountable to the light. And for those of us that are in the church, my hope is that we would not be bystanders and abandon one another to sin, but that we would act. That we would enter into one another's lives for the glory of God. That we would know one another and be known. Let's walk with Christ together in the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Titus, and we thank you that it has a great bearing on us individually and corporately as a church. Thank you that there are challenging things in your word that bear upon us and shape us and form us, and we just ask by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to become more holy daily. You would gently carry us along as the wind in our sails Towards a more Christ-like and Christ-centered existence. Lord, most of all, we thank you for the gospel. Father, we thank you that there is no good apart from you, and that you have allowed us to taste and see that you are good, and that you've given to us life abundant, and that you've taken us from slavery, that you've given us freedom, that you showed us the right restrictions, what it is to truly live. We thank you that we truly live when we love you above all else, when we worship you exclusively. It was what we were made for. So Father, help us to do what you created us to do and give you all the honor, all the worship, and all the praise. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.